On May 2nd, 2005, two F-A-18 Hornets from Marine Fighter Attack Squadron 323, the Death Rattlers, collided over central Iraq. After two successful ejections, both pilots were tragically dragged to death in their parachutes after reaching the ground. The event rocked the families, the squadron, and the air wing. With us today is retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel Ben Big Gay Perky, a MOTS 1 IP, former commanding officer, and was a captain with the MFA 323 on that deployment. We talk about his background, the culture of the Death Rattlers, and his personal account of that tragic day. But most importantly, we talk about how the squadron reacted, the leadership lessons learned, and how the ready room, the families, and the Marines took a devastating event and used it to galvanize them closer together. I'm your host, Susan, and this is the Ready Room Podcast. Skipper, we are live. Hey, Susan. Happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks for uh, letting me uh, visit your house here in D.C. and do a podcast in your attic. This is pretty sweet. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, Pleasure awesome. to have you. No, thanks for uh, thanks for making this work. So this is uh, we're gonna get into some of the heavier stuff a little bit later on, but uh, I don't want to, re- you know, I can't handle ninety minutes of like serious discussion. So just, I understand either can I? Yeah, it's just I can't even be serious for ninety yeah, minutes. We'll we'll try to like limit it to ten to fifteen minutes in the middle, and then okay. surround the the left and right side with just beers and shenanigans. All right, I like it. All right, sweet. So we talked about kind of the the nuts and bolts, kind of talking about that day, two thousand five, May second, but sure. leading up to that, your background. That kind of got you there. So how'd you end up getting in the Marine Corps anyway? Uh, I, when I was five, uh, at my fifth birthday, uh, I knew at that time, that moment in time, I, I wished for an F-15. I wanted to be an F-15 pilot since the age I was five. Wasn't smart enough to get into an academy, so I took the easy route. <laughs> I went into the Marine Corps. Uh, platoon leaders class, great. It's a hidden secret, as I'm sure you know. Um, they uh, prioritize heart, I think, over just pure raw intellect and so i did ocs three times i finally got my because i got injured and i finally got my commission and then i was on my way i also went to Embry riddle and did an aviation degree so that helped got it so you were one of like the really nerdy pilots coming through uh no i barely graduated (laughs) oh coming through flight training yeah um i studied my ass off like a lot of people would say that that having had an aviation background was kind of the defining reason why i did well and I would argue that I studied more than anyone else I knew. Nice. So um, it paid off. Went to Meridian, flew jets there, got winged in 2000, met my lovely wife of almost 20 years in Oceana, going through the F-18 squadrons, and then went to Miramar. And I immediately deployed as soon as I got to uh, Miramar. Okay, so back it up a bit. The five-year-old F-15 sighting, was that like air show style? I or, don't or know. What? I don't know. Just, I'll be honest with you, I have no idea. Okay. But from that moment, I had a amazing set of parents my mother specifically any any of the there were five kids in my family any one of us that showed an interest in anything in particular she really uh found ways to um to plant seeds and help us progress on that on that idea and uh my mom would go to kmart and she would i'd I'd come home from school and there would be a an, an airplane picture book history of something on my bed and i wasn't allowed to watch tv so i read uh Quite a bit. That's awesome. That's it's one of my favorite things about the Marine Corps is the different stories that dudes have and how they got, you know, to flying hornets at least. Sure. And one of my bros, uh, he got his 
you got asked to leave one of the military academies, and okay. then, and then uh, asked to leave. Asked to leave. He was invited. To he leave. was invited to not come back for yeah. his senior year, That's and then cool. he finished his degree online. I love and it. Another our XR scene Marine back in the day in Kingsville was a Grateful Dead roadie. Okay, got a nice. got his GED. All right, went to the local. Somehow got a you know degree, but awesome Marine, awesome pilot, and I love seeing like all these other just disheveled backgrounds that we all joined together. And then myself, I didn't know the Marines had airplanes. I I didn't know a lot of people don't. Twenty five. Yeah, I had no idea. So it's it's one of the things I love about it. It's just hodgepodge of different dudes from all over the place. A lot of guys end up as Marine aviators because they. Graduated college with no plan. Right. Which to me is insane because it's such a demanding job, especially if you couple the, the naval aviation part of it. It's just brutal. It's a contact sport. Yeah, totally. So I thought I was done with school when I got done with college and then flight school started. And right. I was like, wait a second, man. You know, it wasn't bad living in Pensacola and Kingsville and Oceania. That oh, was, yeah. That was course. a good time. Yeah. So the, you know, with the moral of this one, pulling out leadership lessons before and after, you know, May 2nd and then kind of how you rolled them up into your tour as a CEO. Did you have leaders growing up prior to the Marine Corps that you pulled things from? Uh, I, I have no athleticism, so I can't point towards like a coach. And I was not academically gifted, <laughs> so I can't point to a teacher either. But I had amazing parents. I had a father that was uh, just an incredible man. He uh, very patient. He worked really hard to uh, support five kids. My wife's or correction. My mom stayed home and raised us all five of us in Philly. And uh, they both were incredibly supportive. And my dad insisted on paying for college, despite me not wanting him to pay for it. He said, no, every, he was the only one in his uh, family of nine to go to college. Oh wow! And so he insisted that uh, to the max extent that we not leave with debt. So I would say he was my, has always been my inspiration for how I conduct my life. So your old man was the first official leader. I mean, he. he oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. That's good and, to and, but to not to take anything away from my mother. I mean, my dad was very patient. My mom was the disciplinarian. She's German Catholic. They don't mess around. No, no, that's uh, that is true. Yeah. But, so after, um, so after Embry Riddle, you did Meridian One Hundred Six. Where'd you live at up in Oceana? Uh, Reflections apartment complex, actually a mile from my current wife i had no idea that okay. she lived right there so the central you know the anchor point for this talk on is the, the hot mall. tuna well the hot, yeah, tuna, hot tuna and then uh chicks so we as, met as my, guest cases taking pictures yeah, nice. we met actually at hot tuna no kidding officially is where we connected we we met a year prior on a uh i got forced to go on a cross country in t45s with the worst instructor in meridian he suckered me into it and i met her at pentagon city mall her and her friend okay yeah, and then we never talked ever again. Talked for fifteen minutes, and then I met her again a year. You later. ran into her by chance at Hot Tuna. Yep, Holy mostly it, there was a little bit. Who would have thought Hot Tuna case? Yeah, right. She didn't want to go either. I, I was anyway. Okay, good things happen at, at Hot Tuna. I know. I know of a few. Yeah. So, and after one hundred six, you finish up. You go right to three twenty three. Yeah. So while I was at one hundred six, going through the the final portion for listeners, field carrier landing practice phase, which is where you're practicing landing at the ship. It's about a month long. I started getting phone calls from the snakes, uh, which is their kind of call sign. Yeah. The death rattlers saying, get out here. We need you out here. We're deploying. We're getting ready to do workups. 
I was totally stressed out, freaked out. This is during before you go to the boat. I'm not even there yet. So you're you're getting calls. They're tagging you in before you you even qualify. You need to be here like yesterday. Hey, don't screw it up. Yeah. Don't DQ at the boat. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. Um, And so it all worked out. Casey and I packed up our stuff in her uh, Grand Am and drove cross country. And then I literally left for workups. We got there uh, at the end of beginning of March and I left for workups in April. Home a little bit. Long enough for... uh, Casey to get pregnant, and then I deployed for OIF-1, which was a big deal. Gotcha. What was your call sign before you got to the snakes? Uh, <laughs> must we? <laughs> this is one of my favorite mu- questions. Must we go into this? Uh, we don't need the story, just the, just the call sign. Uh, it was FLAW, F-L-A-W, which unfortunately was an acronym, which stands for Feels Like a Woman. <laughs> okay. Uh, you don't, we don't want to talk about it. <laughs> nah, it was really dumb. It, it was a, a, whatever. That's okay. I was, yeah. gosh, I've had like six. And then, um, uh, and then I was Dover because Ben Dover from uh, Fletch Two. Sure. And then I became Big Gay, the most coveted call sign. Yeah, the- it's a great one. Um, back in the day, I was Hijack. Nice. Because I didn't. We were in Picola doing you know T thirty four spins, and I think the the squawk, if I can remember, what you put in was forty seven hundred oh. <laughs> before you do a spin. And I had I had read in one of the books we had to read, and this number was stuck on my head, seventy five hundred. So I was like, I'll throw it in there. So I throw in seventy five hundred, and we're uh, we're hanging out over Pensacola Regional, one of the fields yeah. over there, and we get a, a call of regard. Hey, uh, it's like aircraft squawking hijack ident, and I'm like, holy shit, somebody's getting hijacked. I'm looking around, you know, and the the IP, I just hear him start laughing. He's like, hey, dumbass, what's in the squawk? And I look, I'm like, like I know what I'm doing. I was like, dude, it's seventy five hundred. Relax, I got I, this, I got bro. This. And uh, yeah, I was hijacked for a bit till I earned a, a different one after that. So, all right. So you get to the snakes. They're like, hey, man, don't screw up with the boat. You show up. And then how long before you deployed? Uh, checked in in April, uh, March. And then we deployed October. And that was about a nine-monther, I think. We did October through um, February was Operation Southern Watch. So hitting all the ports on the way to the Persian Gulf and then flying OSW missions and uh, doing like rehearsal, mission rehearsal strike packages into southern Iraq. And then OF1 kicked off. I think the first mission we flew, I flew, was around February 18th or 22nd. Okay. And I actually flew that with uh, Dukes, uh, Major Spar. Okay. Gotcha. So he f- took me on my first quote combat mission. Nice. So this is 05. 2003. Oh, this is 03. Yes. Okay. Got it. So you. How many cruises did you do? So you did 03 cruise and 05 cruise. So with the snakes, I did three. Did three. So I did uh, 02, 02, 03, okay. 04, 05, and then 2009. Okay. And then cruise of the checkerboards. What was the dynamic in the squadron like that first cruise? It was incredible. So the prior, the backstory was the pre- preceding squadron, the snakes were, um, how would you say, it didn't have the best reputation in the head shed. So the captains were solid, but the, the O four is an up or a little um, uh, not quite up to the standard, I think, okay. of operating around the ship. Uh, so because of that, the new mag CEO, Colonel Tex Alice, came in, and he uh, he placed General Thomas, now the Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps, Lurch Thomas, as the CEO of 323. And he had basically his pick of department heads uh, coming into the snakes to try and rebuild the squadron and, and bring back the reputation. Got it. It was incredible. I mean, General Thomas is hands down. So after my father, I would say 
the person that I emulate the most when it comes to leadership situations would be General Thomas. Okay. What specifically about his leadership style? You know, I think I, I've thought about this a lot, and I think if if you're a uh, if if you are well reared and you are a good parent, I think you generally make a pretty good CEO because parents are really just looking out for the best interests of their children. And I try to, he did this and I try to, to follow the idea that, uh, not that your charges are children per se, but you have to have kind of a, uh, you're not looking to make friends. You're there to improve the lives of those around you and do things within your sphere of influence to make them achieve the goals they have both in and out of the Marine Corps. It's not about just meeting the mission. It's about returning great citizens back to our country. Okay. And that was definitely his approach. And so he was very patient. He was very kind, but he was incredibly tactical and just a phenomenal guy. Okay. Did you guys have, so that was the mag CEO at the time, uh, General Thomas was, right? He was the squadron CEO. He was the squadron Sorry, CEO. Sorry, the story was a little convoluted. Tex Alice, who became a general as well, was the mag CEO. Okay. Saw what was going on in the snakes with the preceding uh, boss and and basically told General Thomas when he took over as squadron CEO, you can have whoever you want. Oh, nice. Kind of rebuild. So did squad. you get drafted? Were you like a first round? Uh, no, I think I was literally the best of what was left. <laughs> so I think everyone else was handpicked. <laughs> like, we need one like, more guy. guy. No, All literally right. they're like, and we need one more guy. Okay. And that was me. That's awesome. And so I, you got there and then you're on cruise flying missions. Did, was it a, uh, like a couple month break before the, the nuggets got a chance to fly missions? No, I, there was no room for that. I mean, you just don't have that luxury, I would say. And maybe I told you guys this in the ready room. So for OIF-1, it was perceived to be, we didn't know what to expect. We thought it was going to be pretty ugly. We thought we were going to take heavy losses both in, in the air and on the ground. And General Thomas, then Lieutenant Colonel Thomas, I remember him standing in front of the ready room and saying, look, I'm not sending nuggets across the beach the first night. And I think a lot of us initially took umbrage with that. We thought, hey, we're being left out of the fight. We've trained to the same level as you guys. It's not fair. And I thought about it, and I realized now after having been a CEO, like I literally think he couldn't face the idea of telling families that their sons didn't come home. Like I, I think it was more palatable to say I sent my most experienced people across the beach. One or two of them didn't come back. It was the best that I had, as opposed to saying I sent the brand new captain across and he was killed the first night. Gotcha. It took me a little bit of time to understand that, uh, and then it, it that further enhanced my uh, respect for his his calculus. Yeah, like you you had mentioned, you you don't know what it's like to be a parent till you're a parent type thing. Yes, you got a little perspective there. Yes, nice. he was not being selfish. He wasn't being glory hound. The guy had flown sixty missions in Desert Storm where they were actually killing people and being shot down. So he had that perspective. Right. Okay. So how would you describe the culture of the snakes under general Thomas? Uh, he set the highest standard possible, both in personal and professional decorum uh, around the ship. You know, he wasn't like a, he wasn't a, a, he wasn't so rigid that, that things were uncomfortable. Um, he was just a very casual seriousness guess um uh, I've, I've many watched many documentaries about about aces and people who they rise to that challenge but when they're off duty they're kind of relaxed and just enjoying themselves and that was that was kind of the attitude in the squadron was kind of he was a quiet professional 
quiet, consummate, professional, 4.0 ball flyer. Barely flew, but flew the best formation and always had his bombs on target. I mean, the guy was just an unbelievable aviator. Nice. All the way through his time as a 4.0. Back when the real ball flying, you know. Yeah. Now yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, it, it was a great It was a great environment. Everyone was pulled up. It, it was the environment where... The attitude was, let's make everybody better. So and he made you guys better and you made each other better. Oh, God, yeah. Okay. By far. Who else is in the squadron? Any other rock stars? Casper uh, Workman, who was a Top Gun Mots 1 IP and ended up being a, uh, a squadron CO. Knuckles Shipley, Mag CO. Nugs Golden, squadron CO. Uh, Opie Taylor, F-35, test pilot. Um, so you guys had a, a really good team. We had a great team. And, they, and actually... We won top hook so many times on that cruise that when the Constellation was decommissioned, CV-64, we actually got the final cruise plaque, uh, and it hangs in in the Snake Raider room to this day. Of the top, of all the top hooks? For like 25 or 30 years. That's badass. It came to us. That is badass. It was I did badass. Not, So that's still hanging the Snake's ready it room. It is. That's freaking cool. Yeah. The Snake's have so many... Um, Honors, their honors and lineage is so uh, is, is so bountiful that um, when they decommissioned squadrons, the snakes would be the second to last squadron to go because nice. of all the deployments to Vietnam, Korea, OIF. It's pretty. It's an impressive unit. I I saw the ready room. We were out bouncing when we were hanging out with. Them oh, before. you did. I okay. went over and. Checked yeah. out all the ready rooms. I saw that, you know, the devils, they got all the, the red couches and everything. And then yeah. um, I've heard that the snakes have a really good swag game. Like when you show up as a new guy, at least now, when you check in, senior captain, you get your they bag. Do. Yeah. You got a really good, strong swag game. So I personally am not a swag guy. I actually, um, one of my CEOs like to refer to the snakes as a working man squadron. And I think that that is what I would rather prefer. I'd rather dudes just carry the OD green helmet bag and, and all that. And it's not because I'm, I'm not, you know, for the team, but I think um, your, your actions and your performance should speak louder than all the crap you're carrying around. Yeah. What you're describing came from the 10 heads, the black Knights. There was so much cross pollination between the black Knights and the snakes because we were the only two boat squadrons Yeah. that their guys brought that crap. The 10 heads. Yeah. <laughs> We were the dirty worms, and they were the tin heads. I love it. And there was a, a healthy rivalry there. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, but yeah, no, it's all good. Whatever there makes was, people uh, happy. On the East Coast, it was we had a, we had a good little battle with two fifty one. Oh it's yeah, like of course. Two, you know, sure. good, good stuff. Oh yeah. So getting back to, so we've identified kind of who your first initial leadership role models were. What was your first leadership position in the Snakes? Uh, I was the maintenance officer in two thousand nine. Okay. Even like as a junior officer, were you coffee mess? Were you airframes, oh, power um, line, anything like I that? I was assistant ma- assistant maintenance, and then I was also logistics. So all the move, so all the setting up all logistics for manu- movements to Fallon and whatnot, and that was entertaining because we we lost an entire shipment of squadron gear. Okay, how that goes? Not well. Uh, <laughs> General Thomas was not happy, and he had a way of conveying it with not saying anything. That disappointed fatherly look was just enough to just rip your heart out. And this is when you were the S4? So I was a captain, yeah. And we couldn't find our gear. Um, turned out the driver 
had a scheduled leave period and he stopped in Las Vegas, turned off his phone and, uh, racked out for like 18 hours. So we couldn't get our gear. So we couldn't do maintenance or anything. He was, he was not happy. <laughs> but I'd until, say he was furious, until, but I don't yeah. think he can get furious, but he was not happy. So, but until that information came to light, it was, I mean, it was on you. Oh, it was all on me. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. yeah. Hey, uh, oh, that's it fun. was, it was one of, of many failures on my part throughout my career. Got it. Yeah. That was an early one. There's tons. You nice. can fill a Grand Canyon with, with all of them. So that was, that's kind of, that's actually probably got a really good story with it. So what's a, what's a tough lesson you learned as a, as a junior captain? Did you um, have any, any stuff behind the boat? Any scary stuff? Did you get the, you know, well, so catch yeah, anyone's the, attention? The thing I love about naval aviation is it's entirely unforgiving. I mean, you can have an entire career where you're a four O ball flyer and then, and then the night you have a, a tail strike, you know, hook, hook slap. That's what everybody remembers. And I hadn't even built a reputation yet, but I went out flying in the Persian Gulf. I think my third flight in the Persian Gulf, and uh, and I flew into Iranian airspace, and I spent about fifteen minutes over Farsi Island, which is a uh, yeah. a no fly zone. <laughs> and just like you were saying about squawking seventy five hundred, oh, gosh, uh, Red Crown, which for your listeners are the air defense sector uh, monitors, if you will, they're screaming all over guard. Uh, my aircraft side, it was like 205 or something like 205, your hot dog red, which means you're in someone else's airspace, fly north immediately. And I kept coming up and saying, Hey, red crown, Judy, which is shut up. I right. got it. I'm good. I know where I am. I'm training. It's fine. Yeah. Well, it turns out that I had flown into the wrong segmented box on my navigational display. I thought I was in one of the training areas and I was actually in the box that was designed. So you were staying right above Farsi Island. Yes. yes. The box was specifically designed to remind you to stay out. And I decided to go I'm just all the way out there. right over Farsi Island. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm, I'm doing donuts all over Farsi, Farsi Island. We come back and land and my, uh, I'm thinking everything's fine. I land my flight lead walks, Chachi Neiman, another great American. He walks over to my jet. I get down. He's like, Stay in your flight gear. I'm like, oh, this isn't good. We walked straight down to CAG's office. And then CAG had me tell the entire story. At future Admiral Fox uh, shot down a MiG-21 in Desert Storm. So the real deal. Told the whole story. He just couldn't believe it that it happened the way I described. <laughs> he made me tell the entire story again. Then he kicked me out. And I went back to the Red Room, saw Colonel Thomas. And then I was grounded for three days by the Fifth Fleet Admiral, a three-star. Nice work. Knew my name nice and work. grounded me for three days. Wow, you, your name went up the I chain. I was famous after six months in the squadron. Good work. Yeah, but no call sign came out of it. Like, you would think my call sign would be Farsi, but no, it's it's big gay. So bizarre. Whatever. I mean, you could take that event and run with it. There's a lot of options there. Yeah, and so... Bottom line is it, it keeps you humble. You can't ever take yourself too seriously when you're doing stupid. Well, I love that story. Yeah. I remember we had it in red on our points, lines, and areas. You know, yeah. don't fly into Farsi Island oh, yeah. every single time. Uh, and that was, oh, gosh, that was funny. And CAG, sorry, one last thing. CAG actually asked me, he's like, how close do you think you got to Farsi Island? I was like, I don't know, so like 12, 13 miles. He was like, two. And that was vertical displacement. That wasn't lateral. You were basically just two two miles Two above. miles directly above Farsi yeah. Island. Nice. Gosh, that's that just warms my heart, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, if we sat down all the skippers and everybody, even General Thomas, and everyone's got their own story of a, 
you know, a Farsi Island oh, or yeah, something. Yeah. But before that, you had said you, one of the things you love about naval aviation is that it's so incredibly unforgiving. Oh, yeah. Why is that? Um, well, I, I'm not going to name names, but I, uh, several people on that cruise and the cruise right after who became big names in the Marine Corps, I, I watched them almost die. I mean, multiple times. I can't say that I've ever almost died behind the boat, but I know of several people that came very close. And in some cases, uh, actually in two of the cases, it was the LSOs that picked up on it and literally kept them off the ramp. Uh, in other cases, it was just luck and, uh, you know, good airmanship, I guess. Recovering. So because the standard is so high and it's a non-flexible standard. It is. And, and I, I think what I wrote down was, uh, you know, the variability in flying the hand-eye coordination as required to fly, that can actually be sort of flattened out with training because you can kind of control the things you do in the cockpit. But what you can't control are the ship, the environment, fatigue, visual illusions, the winds. I mean, there are so many things that are are almost impossible to predict um, that as naval aviators, you have to be supreme, supremely adaptable. And I'm not saying this in an egoistic way. I'm saying that there are some people that can throw a football 50 yards, perfect spiral, born to do that, and there are people that cannot. And, and some people can't handle flying around the boat. And we're lucky that we could, but there are a lot of people who just can't. Yeah. That was something I saw is some of the dudes who were amazing at every other part of naval aviation and brain ninjas, super intelligent, whatever it was about the boat itself, that boat environment, that was the one thing in like their entire life. They just couldn't get right. Everything else is just awesome. Totally agreed. So, so that's a good lesson learned zipping over Farsi Island. How long were you actually arcing over Farsi Island? I don't know. It was like 15 minutes. Gosh, that's but- awesome. But Susan, I mean, there are, uh, like I said, you can, I, the thing actually what I learned from that was that it's always best to air your dirty laundry early because what I've found are people that try to hide their mistakes of the past. And hopefully I did this as a CEO was not try to hide mistakes because people always figure it out when they figure it out after the fact. And you had an opportunity to kind of express that you didn't, it starts to create an air of subterfuge you know where you're not sure really what this person's up to and why they're hiding things i try to be as ego less as possible in that regard so yeah i think it uh it shakes up the trust a little bit i think it does and that's a you know barf and i talked about he's got this really cool one saying bumper sticker about trust and how it's the it is the currency of success type thing yeah i agree with that you know trust your people Trust your Marines, that kind of thing. Sure. So that's a pretty good tough lesson as, as a young dude. So you guys finished up that cruise, and that was a pretty dynamic cruise, right? Well, let me Wasn't just, it? yeah, I mean, let me just tell you one or two things that came out of that I saw on that was, one, I had obviously never been shot at before until that until that cruise. And, and in fairness to Vietnam vets and Desert Storm vets, vets it, was, it was minimal. But it was new to me. So... Wrapping your brain around the fact that there are people that actually don't know us but want to kill us is kind of a sobering fact to wrap your brain around. And you did a fact tour, and I'm sure you've been shot at. So it just becomes very personal. You're like, wow, that's strange that all of this AAA is just for me, <laughs> just to kill me. <laughs> what a that's compliment. Weird. That's scary. Yeah. And, and uh, honestly, my gut reaction was I wanted to run. I wanted to leave. That was the first thing that I thought was we need to get the fuck out of here. 
Uh, but luckily I had a seasoned flight lead with me and I'm flying formation, doing the good thing as a, as a, uh, wingman. And, uh, we did our mission. We dropped our ordinance to what effect. I don't really know our ability to assess BDA back then was abysmal. Uh, so that was memorable. I watched the Iraqis and the army, the U S army have an MLRS dual. So multiple launch rocket system dual. They're shooting BM 21s, uh, into the low stratosphere and we're shooting ATACMs, which are the army sort of long range rockets. And I'm watching these things arc at each other on the goggles at night, uh, thinking they're SAM launches, but not seeing my RWR radar warning receiver go off. So I know it's not a SAM, right? But just watching these things go over us at 60, 70,000 feet. That's gnarly. It was pretty nuts. And then the last thing, probably the coolest thing was flying in over, uh, Kuwait and watching a, uh, probably a, a Patriot pack three, which is the hit to kill version of the pack three missile. I'm sorry, of the Patriot missile being shot from Kuwait and taking out an Iraqi scud over Kuwait. So watching the uh, IR bloom on MVGs beneath me and seeing this like uh, arrow just come zipping at Mach 6 from underneath us, kind of in between us with parallax in between us, and then seeing these sparks and explosion at like 80,000 feet as it took out a scud. Okay, that's... Uh... It was pretty wild. Yeah, that's wild. And you're just on goggles watching the on show. On goggles watching the show. And uh, I actually met a guy at Army Command and Staff who we had that exact same experience, but he watched it from the ground. Jeez. Because we talked about the days we were there and whatnot. It was neat. It, that, it, is, that is really cool. OIF uh, was, if war can be fun and everybody comes home on our side and we don't break anything, then OIF was an absolute just blast. Wow. The, uh, we got a chance to go to do a VIP Patriot battery tour when I was in Bahrain oh, nice. in okay. 13, I guess. And they were talking about the, there's a version of the Patriot. I don't, I'm going to assume this isn't classified. I'm just going to make up some numbers, but it's a, it's a late launch. They essentially watch this incoming threat missile, sure. whatever it is, almost the entire time. Yep. And when it's at about, the 80% solution they launch in it because their distance to target is shorter and shorter and shorter. So they're waiting until it's like, we'll call it like 10 yards away, you know, in, yeah. in normal speak. And then they just pick this thing out of the sky. Yep. But the entire time they watch it getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And then they hit it. And I was like, does that make you guys nervous? Like, nah, we're good. Like no big deal. I was like, okay. Cause you know, in, in Bahrain, there's that, the SA five was like half the, the whole country I think is inside it. Erodi and SA5. SA5, yeah. yeah. Um, Well, I don't want to digress too much. You can edit this out. No, no, no worries. This is good stuff. Let me me tell you something about that, though. So another memorable lesson from OIF-1, which all these things definitely shaped my my view of the world, was um, an acquaintance of mine, Nathan White, a Navy, naval aviator, flying F-18s. I don't remember the squadron. They were uh, Japan-based. He and his skipper were flying uh, in Iraq in OIF. And they were, he was blown out of the sky by a Patriot. He was killed. Uh, and then on top of that, sorry if I'm too close. No, no, you're good. You're good. On top of that, uh, about a week later, a Patriot battery, battery shot down a, uh, a British Tornado uh, air defense variant, shot him right off the wing of his flight lead. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I remember reading about those. Right now, Patriots, if you include the Vincennes, we're 0 for 3. 
with our Sams. Yeah. It's not a great place to be. No. I, uh, yeah, I remember reading about that. That was not a good, and I, they th- we talked about it. That again. created a lot of hate and discontent. In fact, yeah. F-16 CJ put a harm into a uh, an MPQ-65 about a week later. Okay. Self-protect shot, I think, over, over the shoulder, actually. Okay, geez. <laughs> so that was a little bit different than, uh, you know, my fun trips to the sandbox. Uh, not nearly as ours was just bring your espresso beans and snacks and Swedish fish and turn left for six hours and you know well yeah I mean whatever it's all relative I mean who who cares it's it's for us it's always new for us I mean the guys flying to Vietnam would would rightfully so scoff at oh totally at our lame absolutely stories yeah give me a break wait triple a like 10 sa2s sa3s sa everything you know 10 launched four came back on every day (laughs) suck it up what you're crying exactly uh anyway so prior to the uh, in between cruises, so you did the O the O two cruise O two O three, right? O two O three. I started working on upgrades. Got like my air combat tactics instructor qualification, which was a big deal. That's like that's a career booster or ender at the time. It doesn't right. exist now. Uh, if you failed that, you pretty much were a terminal captain or major. Okay, Certainly. and then that was so you finished. You got your quals before the second cruise. Second cruise, and then I did the second cruise, and after that, I like I went straight from there to Top Gun, uh, like tr- straight from the 05 cruise to Top Gun, and then and then went to Expeditionary Warfare School. Okay, so were there any other uh, interesting, fun, uh, n- memorable stories from cruise number one with the snakes? Yeah, I think probably probably the uh, my finest hour. And the finest hour of my flight lead, who will remain nameless. But if he ever hears this, he, he'll know. Uh, so we're fl- we're flying off the coast of Southern California. We're on our first workup, which is the preparatory training for the cruise. It's our first time out to the ship. We're really just focusing on going out, flying basic missions, and getting back to the ship. I mean, it's literally blocking and tackling type stuff. So we're out. We're doing a mission. We come start coming back. There's a little bit of weather, but it's not bad. And initially, the ship has us hold basically off the nose of the ship. So we're, we're north of the ship. The ship is driving north, coming at us, if you will. Got it. But we're 30 or 40 miles away from the, the nose of the ship. Well, while we're holding, the controllers come up and say, hey, look, the weather's good enough to do what's known as a case one recovery, which means it's all visual. It's really an uncontrolled uh, scenario, and there's also no talking. It's called zip lips, so there's no discussion on the radio about what's happening. So my flight lead and I uh, start down, and my last glance down at the the navigation display was that we were 180 out from the ship, and my assumption was that my flight lead would figure this out, and we would offset left or right and kind of come around the back of the ship for the for the entry into the pattern. Well, I was wrong that's probably the most wrong i've been in my life uh although my wife would probably disagree that that was my worst hour but anyways we start down being a new guy i want to fly the best formation i can we get to about 20 miles on the attack end, which is the navigational display i tighten up into a nice parade formation i'm just looking at his airplane as we're kind of flying in and out of clouds and i'm not paying attention to where we are with respect to the, the nose of the ship so as we descend down, I notice peripherally I can see the water as we're coming down and, and entering into the, uh, the the break. 
So you're coming in. Are you guys coming in for the shit hot or just the, uh, just the? I don't think so. I think okay. we we're doing maybe 400 knots or something. Okay. So there's nothing crazy, but as we're coming in, uh, I'm I'm flying formation. I'm not looking outside. I kind of notice that we're getting near a ship. And then I hear over the radio, I hear surprise like that. And I'll tell you who that was here in a second. And I've watched my flight lead peel away and he comes up on the background. And he's like, he's like, Oh fuck. Or something like that. <laughs> As we peel away and I'm just like, maybe we almost hit another airplane. Maybe there was a surprise. Yeah, your you know, essay whatever. is, is uh, At my essay is as low zero. as it could possibly be. <laughs> So as we climb away, I kind of spread out in a cruise so I can see a little more. And I see us arcing around and coming back into the pattern. No big deal. We come in, we break, we land. I have a shitty pass as usual. I land, I get out of the jet, I go down to maintenance. And, and guys are coming up to me and slapping me on the back. And they're like, dude, nice job on the break. You guys looked great. And I was like thinking to myself like, yeah, you know what? My formation was good. It was yeah. tight. It was Blue Angel formation, you know, whatever. And then I walk into the ready room and my flight lead's picture, he had taken a selfie on the squadron Intel cameras, which is, we didn't have phones back then in the cockpit, but he had taken a, uh, an Intel camera for photographing ships and taken a picture of himself with a big old mustache in the cockpit. Well, someone found that on the share drive and put it on the, the projector and people had drawn dicks all over oh it and God. call sign reviews and all this shit. And I walked in and I'm like, that's really weird. And I still had no idea what happened. And finally someone sat me down like, dude, you guys came in backwards to the pattern at the ship. You came into the break backwards. <laughs> you came into the break. And I was like, what? He's <laughs> like, what do you think that on the radio, the big surprise? That was the fucking Airboss sarcastically saying surprise because nobody was expecting you to come in from behind over the ship. Like, one, it's extremely dangerous. And two, no one was expecting that because it's never happened in naval aviation <laughs> probably ever. <laughs> And I was like, oh, fuck. Man. And, man, and that, I mean, to this day, it probably, I would venture to say that quarterly, someone texts me or it, it's come up, brought up in a conversation about the time that I let my flight lead come into the break backwards. It comes <laughs> up all the time. So, uh, so anyway. I, go, go ahead. So sorry. the last thing I'll tell you is that the irony is my job at the Pentagon right now, my side job, if you will, I sit next to the air boss, which is the guy that was in the tower that almost 20 years ago was the guy that said surprise on the radio. It was the air boss whose guy, think about Top Gun when Tom Cruise flies by and the coffee goes yeah, on. Yeah. That guy. Yeah, yeah. All right. He runs the pattern. And, uh, and that was him. That is the perfect, like the, the irony of all that and where you work now. And he, so when the, the first interaction, when he saw you, he didn't know who I was, but we started talking. Everybody does the same thing. They sort of kind of explain where they've come from, what their background is or whatever. And, uh, and I was like, oh, yeah, I was, in the, I was in the Snakes. He's like, oh, yeah, when? I told him when. He's like, oh, what ship are you on? I was on the Constellation. He's like, oh, yeah, I was too. He's like, I was there, boss. And then the light came on, and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> Were you there when we came into the break backwards? And he was like, oh, yeah. He's like, that's something you never forget, <laughs> ever. Never. And I was like... Uh, what is it? How does he tell the story? Were they just watching you? He is the coolest guy. He's he was an awesome air boss. He was the he was just a chill, chill dude. And even to this day, he's a uh, he's supremely competent. Just fucking great dude. So when he figured out 
you were you and you yeah. figured out you were you. He just laughed. He, just he was struggled. cool about it. He was oh, super cool awesome. about it. And you still get reminded about it quarterly. I do because so the last thing I'll tell you about the story was, so I think the next day or the day after we're in the ready room and uh, Colonel Thomas had a saying, he would say, I'm easy to please, but I'm hard to satisfy. So that was kind of his mantra about setting the bar high and, and uh, you know, he generally was okay with what we we're doing. And he stood up in the ready room and he came in and he, he was a little perturbed at some of the buffoonery around the ship because he was a consummate professional around the ship. And he, uh, he said, Hey guys, he's like, I'm, I'm generally pleased with how things are going. And he gave us a little discussion about tightening things up and whatnot. And then he left and the XO stood up and was like, guys, the skipper is fucking pissed. I've, when he says generally pleased, he means he's furious. Like, we're like, oh my God. The anger translator. Yeah. yeah. And the AMO stands up later on and the AMO gets up and he's like, listen up, fuckers. He's like, the days of letting your flight lead come under the break backwards are over. And he was serious. <laughs> and all the captains look at me like just laughing their asses off because yeah. he was, I love him to death, uh, but he was kind of a political guy, you know? And uh, he totally threw me under the bus. Here I am, new captain. I have no friends. Major, just like blaming it all. Was on he me. the one that led you into the break? Different backwards? guy. Okay, so of. he was good on him. He was being loyal to his fellow, fellow nasty hinge. Sure, but everyone was just looking at me like, "Oh, big gay, oh, you man. fucked up. You threw everybody under the bus." But man. the captains knew, and so that's what they say all the time. I get texts from my uh, buddy is saying the days of letting your flight lead come to the break over. Those days are over. <laughs> I love how it's 20 years later. Oh dude. It, and it never, you, it comes up quarterly. Uh, that is one of the things I love about just the military culture is that you can, there's no mercy ever. No, I mean, I 20 it. years down the line, there's, there's still no mercy. One of my buddies who lived in DC, his neighbor had pulled a 15 year prank on his TBS roommate. So TBS, they get out of TBS, they go to their, you know, MOS schools and, well, anyway, they've stayed in touch, so they constantly have each other's addresses. Well, he orders this dude uh, a year subscription of Tiger Beat magazine. Oh, yeah. So That's it's Teeny Bopper, magazine. you know, little dudes running around on the cover of the magazine. Sure. You know. Well, every place he went to for the next 15 years, <laughs> for once a month, he would get an issue of Tiger Beat in the, in the mail. I love it. So... I mean, it's been going on for 15 years. He's like, who the fuck is sending me this tiger beat? You know, like, and this dude's like, oh man, I don't know, but you ever find that guy? Like, that's bullshit, you know, blah, blah, blah. So they're yeah, at the yeah. bar one time, all the guys, little, little bro reunion. And he's telling the story about this 15 year prank, but he never mentions in the night, the type of the magazine. He doesn't actually say it's tiger beat. He just says some teeny bopper magazine, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And his buddy, who's the guilty party is at the other end of the table and he's laughing along, like, haha, this is great, best story yeah. ever. Nobody knows it's him. And then he says something like, Man, if I got Tiger Beat for 15 years, I'd kick some dude's ass. And the dude stands up. He's like, I never said Tiger Beat. And chucks his <laughs> beer bottle at him, tries to climb across the table, you know. And, uh, uh, but, you know, the mercy uh, is non existent. No. And that's the way it should be. So, yeah. so that was a, that's a good uh, story. What was, you had told us on cruise that you came 800 feet from becoming famous a second time or yeah, a third time potentially there, no a third time there's a trend i can't either i can't navigate or the people i'm with can't navigate so uh, but i know that about myself and like uh, gi joe says knowing is half the battle so we're at uh fallon we're doing a, a green flag or a red flag 
big exercise. I was a uh, an instructor pilot. I flew in from Yuma, and I'm supporting a squadron. Uh, I think it was VMFA AW225, and um, they needed some you know seniority to help with the young guys and whatnot. So I'm I'm quote unquote a heavy hitter if that's even a thing. You're one of the ninjas from down the street. Supposedly a ninja. Yeah. Apparently not really. <laughs> uh, so we take off and we're doing an air to air mission. And of course the air force being the air force, they always put the visiting squadrons right next to the container, uh, right next to area 51, because they also don't want to get violated and sent home. Cause if you fly into area 51, even if it's the first day, even if you're a Colonel, you have to leave. Like there's no mercy. So we're out there and we're doing this mission. Things are going fine. It's busy, but it's Okay. I'm flying with a Wizzo, great guy, I won't say his name, but uh, we're doing a uh, an attack, and it's about time to depart the attack and, and, and go away from the bad guys while our missiles do their thing. He thinks I'm going to go out right. Geometry dictates a left out. I'm at 80-mile scale. He's at 10-mile scale, so the, my, my ability to determine how far I am from Area 51 is, is not good. So I start turning, I start going left, and he just comes up on the intercom. He just goes, pull, 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 like that. And I just pull the stick to my lap, and we pull like six and a half, six Gs, whatever you can get at 20,000 feet at, at our airspeed. Maybe it's only like five, but squat the jet, square the corner, and we miss Area 51 by 800 feet. And I know this, excuse me, because when I go back and look at the, when we went back and look at the tapes, the RTO, who's the guy, God's eye view, he's calling us the whole time. He's saying the call sign, like whatever our call sign was. He's like, you know, Snake 2-1, come north. Yeah, you're you're near Area 51. Come north, come north. The Wizzo and I aren't hearing this because the, the comm is so busy. It's so intense Yeah, on, on four radios. So we're not hearing them. So they're watching us, and the people in the control center have zoomed the tactical tracking display down to the 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 highest level of zoom you can possibly have on this huge screen TV, and they're watching us maneuver, and they're all like thinking about and, yeah, and placing like, bets, placing yeah, bets, who's, like how's, what are these going to make it or not? Yeah, what are these fucking marine clowns going to do? <laughs> this ninja from Moss is out <laughs> yeah. here. Well, they don't know that. They don't know. Okay, that. they just okay. know it's a marine jet. And so they see me start to turn, and they're all like, "No, like, oh, like you're like, like you want to see something bad happen, but you also want." people to succeed and they're all like oh shit and they see me turn and no kidding like they're watching and measuring out with the little fucking measuring stick yeah and and i had 800 foot pass with the vertical boundary of area 51 so that wasn't the worst part the worst part was the next day in the debrief this all gets put up on the big screen my call sign I have to stand up and give like a fucking testimonial. Like the whole, it is ultra embarrassing. Like by design, ultra embarrassing. The funny part is like two days later, I left to go back to Yuma, <laughs> but the squadron had to stay. Oh man. <laughs> and I was, I was flying under their call sign. Yeah. So nobody knew who yeah, I was. They didn't know you. Yeah. Dude, I, a good friend of mine, what I consider to be a good friend of mine that I cruise with, he was the CEO. I think he's still butthurt about that. I'm like, look, man, I never said I was a good pilot. Hey, and also you didn't cross the line. I didn't. So exactly. Is that, had, is that skill or luck? Right. I think right? it's a little bit of both. Yeah. I mean, Divine maybe, maybe you were just, you had so much SA right. that in your 80 mile scale, you could tell I I've got tell. a few hundred more feet to go. I'm going, you know, 520 knots. Yeah. I can wait fine. an extra half a second. Yeah. It, yeah, dude. 
They were that squadron was so incensed that they and I actually have the printout of my near miss. Um, they printed off the tax display and they gave it to me when I left. The squadron pasted that into their squadron cruise book thing, that, yeah. like quotable quotes that they have. Yeah, I'm sure it's if you went to Miramar or wherever 225 is now, you would find that in there, and it's highlighted with my track, and it says, "We're here. I'm from Mott's. I'm here to help." <laughs> Yeah, big gay yes. motherfucker, like whatever. Yes. I love the super butter. It was so ever. funny. The uh, there's some good stories about the Mots Bros uh, coming out to support, and just you know, you guys oh, yeah. live in a building with no windows and fly on occasion. You fly like sixty hours a year. Yeah, and, and you're expected to hit the ground running every yeah. time. And yeah, we I think the Mots guy came out the three twelve and over G'd the jet. Uh. Gosh, did he? Over Gene and another guy, uh, his he hit the uh, his knee hit the fucking test switch on the firelight. That's what it was. I remember that. He was but here's the thing, like came in and was apologetic and I was like, whatever, dude. No here's like my measure of success was like it's just training. Nobody died, plane came back, you're a little embarrassed, who cares? Like, let's debrief it, move on. That was uh I didn't write this down in the outline, but I remember uh that brings me to the memory of when I uh, overstressed the jet in FCLPs. Oh, I remember, yeah. And uh, you were the skipper. Um, it might as well get this one out of the way now because this is, wow, what the hell. But I remember uh came out of the break. We had two jets. It was two to make two. Yeah. And we had to bounce 14 guys. <laughs> I do remember. And I was the first of 14. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, my I lived over Habersham. I lived at Habersham. So my goal was to be... Over because the, there's like the anti-military group oh, of yeah. people that lived at Hammersham. Like so my goal was to be at, you know, 800 feet, as fast as possible over sure. the Habersham pool, and shake the windows of every neighbor in that neighborhood, and I was so I was bringing the heat, and I think I might actually had, I don't think I even had a single center line that day. Anyway, uh, pulled 8.1 in the break. I was like, technique oh. only. I was like, oh, uh, and powder was dashed too. He was, the, he was the other guy. <laughs> so I was like, all right, well, I'll finish my bounce period and at least get one X done and then call maintenance, tell him, yeah, jet's broke. So I see Potter maintenance. He's like, bro, rolling pull, man. Rolling pull, never works. What'd you pull? 8.1, nice, bro. I was like, no, not nice. And I remember I got up to the ready room and I'm, I was, I knew I had just, I gosh, I was in the squadron two months at the time. Was it even two months? It, it might, uh, it was, it was early, but, uh. Dwim was on the desk, and he's like, yeah, Susan, uh, just hang tight, man. Skipper uh, wants to talk to you. I was like, yep, figured that one was coming. And I was I was expecting, uh, like, an absolute beating. I was like, I'm going to get, I mean, they're going to send me to the mag. Like, there's time. They can swap me out with somebody. Like, it can. there's time for that. But you came back from your meeting, and you're like, hey, Susan, you got a minute? Like, you... You were like politely asking if I had to make t- if I had time for you, and I was like, sure. "Yeah, I I think yeah. I can make a minute, sir." And uh, when you're like, "Yeah," so what happened? And I was like, "Yeah, I was I came in a little too fast. I was kind of flying like a jackass and uh, did a rolling pull." He's like, "Yeah, rolling pulls don't uh, yeah not going to work." And then you said, "There's a time and a place to bring the heat, you know, when you come in, bring the division, and you you, know, you got to break it off early and all that." But he's like, "Bro, you're like not when there's two jets." <laughs> And we got to bounce all 14 guys like, yeah, you know, and you just said, Hey man, you're the senior captain. I expect better. Uh, that's your warning. And it was, it was it. And I was, you're like, all right, have a good day. And 
but it was i mean it was it was that disappointed father i just sacrificed the if i had any trust established at the time whatever little was there i just like chucked it out the window the good news is there wasn't any there yet. wasn't any so i was starting it's not so, personal. Yeah. it just takes time <laughs> um yeah man but you know that was uh i was like all right i'm, I'm starting off at least i'm still at zero so yeah, I, you're I, at the, uh, I still have no credibility yet. Yeah. So I got, I can only go up from here, but that was a good, uh, the perfect ass chewing was just, it was, I expect more to you. You're a sure. senior captain. Don't do it again. And yeah. I, I got the tone. I'm like, I'm not going to, that was my one lifeline. I was like, I'm not doing this again. So, and, and you, you know, and to your credit, you, uh, you, you didn't. So, um, but you guys, you know, the guys that you, you have people, so kind of a segue, but I was thinking about this, is that you kind of split the squadron into thirds. You have a third of your group that are just kind of get it and they can they can make the mission happen. And then you have a third that you kind of have to do a little bit of mentorship with and sort of lead and build them up. And then you have a third that really just can't be unsupervised. And I was thinking about this today. The thing I loved about um, like you and Dwim and Powder and Gage and, of course, Toilet, and loaf was that it didn't matter what the mission was. If the weather was shitty, in fact, you know, I would hand place you and Dwim and some other guys on the OIF missions that, or OIR missions that were, I knew was, were going to be rough because I, I could sleep. I could actually go to sleep and I knew I wasn't going to get a phone call at three in the morning. So aggressiveness is welcome. It just needs to be bounded. Yeah. And when there's more than two jets, yeah. And two, that's not a great, yeah. 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 So just two. asking for a little more situational yeah. awareness. Yeah, that would have been helpful. Yeah. It would have been helpful. Awesome. Um, all right, cool. So we're going to get into. Uh, well, how else would I react when I've flown over Farsay Island? I've come to the break backwards. I've flown over Area 51. <laughs> I've landed with almost no gas. I mean, I, it would be a little hypocritical to be like, shame, you know, for shame. How dare you? I mean, that just doesn't make sense. But. No, it was. I'm glad to hear that you have had so many other really famous moments. Oh, uh, I fucked up. Some I forgot stuff. about the Farsi Island one, but that was a that was legit. I didn't know the backwards break. That's, Not me. I'd rather be infamous. I mean, infamy is a form of fame. So true, true. Not a big and then deal, you get to work with this guy every week, which <laughs> is, makes it even better. And he still accepts me as a not as a peer, but at least as an acceptable substitute as a peer. Okay, so uh, this is where we'll, we'll get into kind of the oh yeah. The, the meat and potatoes. So sure. May 2nd, 2005, you're on your second cruise. Correct. And talk about kind of the cruise up into uh, May 2nd, at least. Just what it was Jeez. like, what the culture was, the ready room, and uh, and then we'll get into the day itself. So, great. Yep, absolutely. I'll talk about the goods. So the goods were that um, we had a lot of uh, tacticians, and I would say that while the period under Lieutenant Colonel Thomas was uh, formative and probably the best time of my flying career in terms of uh, professional actualization of like doing the things you train to do, dropping bombs and doing missions and whatnot. The next phase I think was really forming me into a true professional tactician and someone who was, might refer yourself as an operator, like somebody who's getting a SME level of expertise in the F-18. And that is because of my second CO. And it's not because Colonel Thomas couldn't have done that for me, but I wasn't ready 
So it wasn't until I had been flying for three years with Brutus coming in that he made us into true tacticians. And he really focused on being a fighter pilot and and just understanding your weapon system in a way that I hadn't experienced yet. So that, I will say, was the time that I was the most tactical I've ever been. We flew a lot. We flew on the road a lot. We fought a lot. I was probably the best at BFM I'd ever, dogfighting that I would, would ever be. Um, so I would say from that standpoint, we were very tactical, and I think all of my peers would agree with that. The other thing I would say is that we were still operating at a high level. Um, we were still taking top hook often around the ship, which is kind of a big deal. So you guys were you were still getting top hook and all that? Yeah, we're still operating at a really high level, but I think in a lot of ways we were burning the candle at both ends. So I was working 14-hour days. I was never, you know, even when we were home, we weren't home. The expectation was to be at the club every Friday like we talked about. And, I mean, it was it was very, very busy. But I will say we were the most tactical I'd ever been. But that being said, some of the moral and ethical things were eroding. Okay. Eroding a little bit. We weren't quite as, uh, I don't know how to describe it. I, I just feel like we were kind of on the fringe of what is acceptable, like with taking airplanes, flying, that kind of thing. I don't know. It's a balance. So the culture was a little bit different than the, your first cruise? It was very rough and tumble. It was very like um, drinking and, and just, uh, I don't know, taking a lot of risks, okay. if you will. And I think that when you have a, a leadership group that takes risks and then advertises taking risks, it can't help but matriculate down to the captains. And so some of the dumber things that I've done, conscious dumb things, I don't mean like accidentally flying over an island, I did during that time. So the the atmosphere of the radio room was a little, the risk taker mentality was a little bit stronger? Yes, and you hear about a normalization of deviance. This was literally a case study in the normalization of deviance. Okay. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail yeah. about it, but yeah, no worries. that was the mindset. So talk about May 2nd, 2005, kind of where you were, because you were on duty that day, right? I was, yeah. I was, desk. I was sitting at the desk, and we're on a... Uh, Do you remember a, before? So uh, before they launched, when they walked, everything. I mean, up yeah, into I, the actual launch itself, and then when you received the news. A little bit. So the night before, I had, a, uh, I had dinner with... Uh, Major Spar, when he was buried, he was buried Lieutenant Colonel Spar, uh, promoted posthumously. Um, but I had dinner with him, and he was expressing how he and his daughter Chandler, who was 11, he was divorced at the time. They were going to go on a trip, to, I think, to Europe. I can't recall. But we had dinner together, and we parted ways. And and uh, and then he and Trash, Kelly Hines, left, walked for their jets, probably around, I'm just guessing, 1,500 it was probably like a 1700 launch. So briefing, walking out the door, maybe 1600. Uh, typical thing. Like we were doing a basically four jets a day. So two in the morning and two in the evening. And the evening shift was a day to night transition. Okay. So they walked and, and loadout wise, I think we were carrying um, one laser guided bomb, one JDAM, which is a GPS guided bomb. And then I think an AIM-9 okay. is it. And then 20 millimeter. Got it. So they walk, they launch. I think I mentioned to you that actually we have their last launch on video. Sergeant happened to be up there filming just randomly. 
they shoot off and uh and they go they're climbing out do their thing it was about a seven hour mission and it was in iraq at that time the time of year in may is when you get these like shamal like sandstorms that literally it's it's zero zero from surface to thirty three thousand feet so they're flying in the goo the entire time seven hours I'm on duty. They're out doing their thing. People are checking in on Merc Chat, which is a uh, secure chat room. Mm-hmm. Kingpin is the controlling agency, and then there you see different people pop up and ask questions and whatnot. So as they're... Do you want me to get into what happened? Just as much details as you'd like to share. Really just uh, not the specifics of the oh, actual oh, yeah, crash itself, but when... The news happened, and you first noticed it on a Merc chat. Yeah. Right? Okay. So I'll get. Yeah. So basically, and and I, I've I've said their call sign was Dark Star. I honestly don't remember, but it's a good place to anchor. I think they were Dark Star or something four one or whatever. So we're I'm on Merc chat. I'm I'm probably just listening to music and not really paying attention. And I see Kingpin, which is the controlling agency, come up and say ninety nine, which is hey everybody roll call, and they're repeating what's being said on UHF radio. All right, so this is just a, a, a log, if you will, of what's being said. Roll call, and you see the F-16s check in, the F-15s, the Navy F-18s, Slappy and Hamster check in. They were the other Marine Hornets that were out there. They check in. But no, we'll just call them Dark Star 4-1. No check-in. And I see that, I'm like, hmm, that's kind of weird. Maybe they're off frequency. Maybe they're dropping bombs. Who knows? So I just whisper chat, which is like a separate, it's like a instant messenger. I whisper chat to Kingpin. I'm like, hey, where's Darkstar 4-1? No response. I see a second roll call going through. Darkstar doesn't show up again. I whisper chat again. I'm like, Kingpin, where the fuck is Darkstar 4-1? And that's when the screen froze. So like a communication lockdown. No more calm. And, I, and I'm just kind of perplexed. It was a weird, I didn't know what to think. But I could feel like uh, cortisol kind of like building, you know, in my uh, in my gut. And that like that nervous feeling. And and then I saw the safety officer come in. Um, and he grabbed a mishap binder and he walked out. He had a very solemn look on his face. And he walked out and I believe he went down to Catsy, which is the uh, like the nighttime yep. spot, you <clears throat> know, for the COs and everybody. And I didn't see him again. And uh, so that night, the skipper called a, and this is vague, called like a midnight AOM and said, hey, man, uh, Dukes and Kelly are down. Um, there, was a, there was a big explosion that was noticed by NTM, National Tactical Means. Kind of saw a big detonation over, over Iraq. They did a roll call. They didn't respond. We have two beacons, so we know they ejected. They're probably alive, and uh, we're going to get them get them out. And that was it. That's kind of how we went to bed was hopeful. And uh, I didn't know it, uh, but I will say my respect for Air Force pararescuemen went up quite a bit during this time because I found out later that during that sandstorm where it was like 0-0, zero, zero, there was a uh, a CH-53 Pavlo helicopter with PJs that was just combing the Iraqi desert in, in, in impossible conditions. 
trying to find our guys. They, they didn't succeed, but, um, so props to those guys. So that was it. We went to bed, you know, morale was high. We'll get our boys back. It sucks that we lost two airplanes, but all, all that matters is that they're alive. That quickly, I think after about 24 to 36 hours, it started to look a lot less like they would be alive. And that's when this just kind of general gloom descended on the squadron and people just kind of internalized. So I'll stop here and I will say that um, this was a, uh, the Army calls major events in your lives crucible events. I don't care what you call it, but it's like kind of the time when you go from being a child to being an adult. And I would say for many of us, this is when we like grew the fuck up. Because OIF-1 was so easy. We all came home. All the jets came back. We were heroes. And this time around, um, it was starting to look like, like, oh, this is serious business. It was, it was shocking. It was a shock to the system. How and, did, I don't yeah, want to cut you off, but at least I want to get a little bit of a, yeah, kind so, of where you were at. So initially you go to bed at, there's hope you oh, eventually yeah. realize the sobriety kicks in. How did you personally, well, had you at least mentally prepared yourself in any way for no. this type of scenario before the cruise or before no. your first cruise? Nope. So this was just straight shot to the chin. And I had never lost anyone close to me ever. I mean, some people lose parents at a young age. Some people lose friends, whatever. I had an idyllic upbringing. I'd never lost anyone close to me. And I, I frankly was not prepared and I didn't know how to deal with it. And you feel like on a ship, all of us, I think, felt like there's really no one you can talk to about it because it's not manly to express your feelings. I mean, it's weird. You have a mishmash of survivor's guilt. If you're an instructor of any kind, you feel like, oh, what did I miss? What did I, what did I not teach so-and-so? Whose fault was it? That's a big piece. You know, was it, was it Dukes? Was it Trash? What, like, who hit whom? We knew they hit each other. Um, it was brutal, but it, it was sobering. So when when it officially settled in, when you got the news that, hey, they didn't make it, what was the atmosphere in the ready room, and how did you guys react to it? I think everybody hid. Like, you talk about a TBS cocooning. Like, literally nobody wanted to be around anybody else because they were too concerned like I remember Lee, I was coming up a ladder well and uh, one of the Marines that God, I can't remember his name. He's a good kid. I saw him and he can't and as I was walking by, this was like this was after we finally got the news that they were that they were no shit deceased. Mm-hmm. Um I was like a, a ticking time bomb. I was walking around. I just remember a, a Lance Corporal walked by. I was like, Hey sir, I'm really hey, I'm really sorry about Major Spar. And I, I had to, I ran, I ran because I knew I was going to burst into tears. I, I, just, I had to get away as fast as possible because I didn't want anybody to see that. And I remember sitting at dinner telling the doc or someone, I was like, I'm not, I was like, I'm not okay. Like, I'm not okay. I shouldn't be flying right now. But I think everybody felt that way. And no one knew what to do for anyone else. So, but how soon was it after the news officially that you were back in the jet? Uh, I want 
literally think it was so I probably misspoke earlier when we talked about this. So there was about a 24 hour period where we weren't sure and we're hopeful. And then I think we got the news the second day. So we flew, you know, we flew the, during the unknown period we mm-hmm. were flying. And then that the next 24 hour period, we knew that they were deceased. We were flying the next day. And you were in the jet flying a mission. Yeah. It wasn't even a, no one even asked what any of us thought. Now I want to be clear. I'm not sharpshooting the skipper. I don't know. I don't know that he knew what to do any more than any of us knew what to do. Traditionally, soldiers and Marines that are kind of shell-shocked, they found it's better to just put them right back to work, keep them busy. The problem is when you're, when you're doing circles over Iraq at nighttime, you're really not busy. It's not like you're physically exhausted. You're, just, you're literally sitting there with your thoughts. And that was... Uh, that was a little tough. I, I flew with a guy. We didn't say one thing in six hours to each other beyond the absolute bare. The minimum calm. Minimum calm. Like there was no banter. It was just absolutely dead silence. And like I said, I don't remember landing on the ship. Like I, I don't even know how I got there. I'm so just, how did you compartmentalize that? What was your, because you knew you had to, because if you get a nine line, it's game time. I think, I think it would have been fine. I think I would have handled that fine. Because he, Good, bad, or indifferent, aviators compartmentalize their entire lives, probably to the detriment of their families. They, they take all these emotions, they put them in a box, within a box, within a box. In fairness, it's taught behavior, it's learned behavior, because I didn't say this, but during OAF-1, I slept about an hour a night for three weeks, mm-hmm. and I was convinced that I was going to die at any moment. And so I just accepted the fact, and I don't mean from enemy fire, I mean from just fatigue, crashing in the ocean. Every cat shot at night was just like, eh, that's probably my last one. Fuck <laughs> I mean, literally, that, I'm not I don't mean kidding. to laugh, but I mean, yeah. I, like, I know you're talking about. I'm like, not well, kidding. I was yeah. like, this is it. You know, I, I would say, uh, you know, I was, whatever, I was raised Catholic. I would say an active contrition before every cat shot because it could be my last cat shot. And that was what I accepted. And that actually got me through I'm sure it's not unique to me. That's what got me through those that time. And then I finally, after like three weeks, got a full night's sleep and then was able to to sleep. But when you're always compartmentalizing the possibility of death, not to make it glamorous or sound, I'm not, you know, we're, we're not tough. We're just human beings adapting to a situation that there's a switch. You just... It's, it's learned behavior. It's yep. not like I'm a badass. It's literally just a switch. Yep. That was, uh, so Cooch, he died when we were deployed 2016, June 6th, I believe. Yeah. And I was at the Kayak. And I was lucky enough to have some buddies go to bat for me. Uh, Daryl Mullins took my spot at the Kayak. I flew home. Oh, nice. Skipper went to bat. I mean, it was, got to kick up with the old checkerboards, you know, yeah. pay Cooch respects from the boys. Sure. But, when I got back, you know, I had, I had a few days that most guys didn't. So I got to, I appreciated that and took advantage of it and, uh, you know, kind of carried the torch for the Hawks, but you know, other guys in the squadron were bros with Cooch also. Oh yeah. They flew that day. Yep. You know, like they kept going and you know, everybody had their way to dealing with it. But, um, like you said, you flipped the switch. You put your business shoes on and you, you go. 
because when that JTAC needs you, it's you can't be like, nah, I'm I'm sad or whatever. It's all right, man. Dudes need your help, and you make it happen. Um, so what was the so you land? You had mentioned the squadron after kind of the initial effect of it took place that it it brought you guys together. Yeah, well, and I didn't. What I also mentioned was at the same time was the uh, the slow trickle of information. So I'll tie this into the coming together piece. Is that the slow trickle of information back to the wives? I mean, you have to understand that this is when you're talking about the a when the news puts on the on the on TV that a Marines an unnamed Marine squadron flying off the USS Carl Vinson. Gee, it doesn't take a lot of effort to figure out who that might be. Has lost two Hornets and the pilots are missing. Uh, that sent eighteen ish families into fucking orbit. No email, no comm allowed off the ship. It's radio silence. They're frantically emailing because all they want is the a sign of life, proof of life from their loved one. And it's eating them alive. And then you have like a uh, a former snake gets tasked with the uh, casualty affairs calls officer job. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to feed calm these wives down and feed them information. And like I said, one of them, I think she knew Casey and I have talked about this many times. She kind of knew that it was her husband. She just had this feeling women have that intuition, mm-hmm. but it was, it was absolutely brutal on them, but that also galvanized them in, in a way that they still are very close. They don't get to see each other and talk all the time, but they're still close for us. Uh, one of our guys, uh, Kitty Collins, who is a Blue Angel, was a was a Blue Angel, retired now. He uh, had the wherewithal to grab a camera and go around, and it was cathartic. He he had everybody explain like, "Hey, tell me the tell me the best thing about Dukes. You know, tell me your favorite story about. I mean, we're talking a week after this happened, right? And uh, it's all captured on video. It made it on the cruise video that he made. Um, and s- ever since then, that shared trauma where we sort of, um, we all kind of grew up at exactly the same time. Now, some of the guys had experienced death in their families, so it wasn't new to them, but for the rest of us, it was new. And it, it pulled us together to, to this day. All, all but one guy is on his original marriage. You're talking like 15 people. Mm-hmm. Um, the wives still talk when they can. The guys all talk when we can. That shared experience definitely drew us together in a way that I'm glad it happened. It's sad that it happened, but I'm also glad. And I think you probably experienced this with uh, Cooch, pulling people together. Yeah. Can't. Plus, I've said many times, and I've told our daughter this, you don't know people until you've seen them at their worst. I mean, you you don't really know somebody until you've seen them uh, literally at that that breaking point. What do they do? Do they crumble? Do they stay in their bed and cry all day? Or do they strap their gear or their jet or their whatever back on and go out and do it? We all kind of got to see what all of us were made of in those weeks. Did you find that flying 
<clears throat> uh, excuse me, was getting back in the jet was good for you? Or did you feel like it was? No. Okay. For me, no. I needed some serious, um, I don't know. I needed time with a trusted agent. I, honestly, if I had had my choice, I would have had a few days with my wife in Dubai or something. That would have made all the difference for me. Someone to just, you know, someone I could talk to. And she's dealt with a lot of stuff in her past, and she's a great uh, listener. Um, Because the flying we were doing was not busy flying. It was administrative in nature. It was mm-hmm. just drilling holes in the sky. Right. So, so that's, I mean, that's six hours to just your thoughts. Just in your thoughts. Yeah. It's a very, very unsafe place to be. Just like I said, I nobody else remember. to talk. Yeah, you're just yeah. marinating in your own brain. Yeah, yeah, I got it's you. Not, it was not good. And then the, uh, I don't know, dude. I, it was, it was just a, and it, and that feeling lasted for every bit of a year. Like even coming back, it was I, I, I had what I would call short term uh, PTSD from that okay. situation. It eventually faded, thankfully. It's not an issue now, but. So that was a. You'd call that a crucible day. With that the, was a watershed event for me. So that yeah, was a big absolutely. deal. Um, and that was 2005. So you picked up command, was it late 16, early 17? Selected in 16, took command in February of 17. Okay, and you knew we were going on cruise. Yep. We were going back to the exact same place where you guys were in 2005. Yep. Did you tap into that experience and kind of pull some of those lessons and just what you gathered from it and bring those into your kind of command philosophy? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think going in and I think I mentioned to you like about right before I took command is when uh, my dad passed away in 2016. I think those as we age one, I think being a CEO later in life. So I was lucky in that lucky or unlucky in that I was passed over twice um, yeah, I, I know one, I, lo- I know a little bit about being passed over <laughs> a couple of times. I mean, I, I, it was, they were competitive years. I mean, the, the people I was going up against were, uh, were well positioned and very worthy of, of command. So I was very humbled to get the call. Um, as an alternate, I was, I was fine with it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I knew going into it, I think my, because I had kind of accepted the fact that I would never be a CEO and I was planning on retiring when this presented itself, I was like, man, this is just a, a great opportunity, but I'm going to try and enjoy myself. Um, and I'm going to temper myself with not being political and not worrying about the mistake people make is they don't lead at their current rank. They're, they're too busy worrying about the next rank. What am I going to, what am I, what do I need to say to my boss to make sure I make Colonel or to make general? Like your contract as a CEO is just to do the job in that moment. They're not paying you to, to try and out game your boss to get to the next level. And I think a lot of people do that. And it's a shame because the burden of that falls on their Marines trying to meet these unreasonable expectations. So my going in position was what I said earlier, which was everybody comes home, ideally with all their fingers and their toes. And it would be really nice if we brought all our jets back because my three preceding cruises, my first cruise I think we had a sailor fall off the ship. Maybe that doesn't count. Okay. Maybe not. <laughs> okay. Second cruise, we lost two 
you know, two pilots, two aircraft. That was kind of a big deal. Yep. I misspoke. First cruise, I saw an S3 fall off the ship. Okay. So actually, Colin, the guy I work with, the air boss, he was there for that. And S3 lost his brakes, fell off the ship. Pilots ejected as they're tipping over the side yep. like fucking Wiley Coyote. Yeah. It was insane. Seen that video at, at LSO school. Yeah. That's in the uh, in the highlight reels of all the crash and burn videos. Yeah. It's, was it going off? I think like Cat 4 just goes yep. off to the left and just tips over the edge. Yep. Yep. Okay. And actually, they literally, I know I know we're digressing. Is it okay if yeah, I Yeah, totally. Rock and roll. Um, they, uh, two junior guys, two lieutenants. S3 carries four people, but there were only two in there at the time. They have a brake issue. They call back. They say, hey, we have a brake issue. The CEO, I think, was on the radio, said, hey, I had this the day before. Just use the emergency nose wheel steering or whatever. I don't know how the S3 works. It's Cold Warrior shit. But they're like, cool. So they land. We're going to do what, what we were told. They pull the the thing. It doesn't work. So they have no nose wheel steering and no brakes. They're rolling towards the edge. They're talking to each other because they're side by side in the S3. What do you want to do? Nose wheel goes off the end. They stop. And they're like, oh, all right. Let's unstrap. Let's run through the tunnel and get out of this thing. And about that time, it starts to teeter and tilt very slowly and fall off. And they both punch out. And uh, the pilot tells it that uh, he watched the, I don't know what they call their, not ECMO. I don't know what they were called. Not NF, They're NFOs, but they're something. Sure. Sounds good. Shoots out rocket motor. His arm gets kind of burnt, which it typically would happen. But he thought his face got burnt. And the reason being is that he went in the water. He felt the flame of this thing going up because the ECMO goes first and then he goes. He thinks he's all burnt up. They pull him out of the water. They put him on a gurney. They take him out of medical. No one will make eye contact with him for like an hour. He's like sitting there. He's not critical. They're setting things up, whatever. But no one will look at him. And he thinks half his face is like burnt off. And finally, a corpsman walks by, and he's like, he's like, dude, I, I need a mirror. Get me a mirror right now. He's like, okay, whatever. Or no, I'm sorry. The corpsman's like, what, what do you need a mirror for? He's like, my face. Isn't it all burnt up? He's like, no, you're fine. And they just kept going about his business. <laughs> sounds right. You're fine. <laughs> Could be a bitch. And, yeah. uh, and Ben, his, his name was Ben. He was like, for an hour, he was just agonizing over his cooked face. And what what was it? Was there anything no, to it? He just fine. Okay. He just, I mean. It's not the first time somebody ejected from an S3. It wouldn't make sense that it burns the pilot. But it was his first time, you know. He yeah. didn't know. So anyway, so yeah. So so going into the checkerboards, like I said, it was just, uh, to me, it was a Twilight tour. I knew it. Uh, it's not that I didn't want to be a colonel. I just, it wasn't a high priority for me. And um, I just want everybody to come home because, frankly, I couldn't bear the thought of going to someone's mother, wife, father, and saying, hey, I'm sorry, Phil didn't make it back. Because at the end of the day, you're the CEO. You set the tone for safety, for tactical excellence. And like I said, the things that go poorly, you should take none of the credit for. The things that, I'm sorry, the things that go poorly is all on you. All the good stuff is all on your people is how it should be. Um, so that was it. I just want everybody to come home alive. It was sounds, a, like, uh, sounds like a low bar, but it's not. No, it was a refreshing, but I think you, you balance that with not being overly risk averse. Right. And there was a, there was a couple of examples where I'd seen and also other squadrons in the air wing. When we got to flying tactical missions, 
they had their SOP of only certain qualified guys can fly with other qualified guys on actual missions. Sure. Whereas you were like, no, like our newest qualified guy is qualified and, you know, paired him up with a a certain flight lead. But I remember our junior guys flew that first week we were flying tactical missions where, and and, you know, we're at the wardroom and some of the other squadrons like, man, I'm not allowed to fly for three weeks, you know? And we're like, what? But I, you balanced that, that perspective of, Hey, we're still tactical. We're still how to do a job. The guys are prepared. They're trained well um, with that. We're going to bring everyone home. So, you know, some guys like they get that, they get so risk averse that they forget that, Hey, we're here to be tactical. Um, So that was a cool thing to see from the company grade side is that, and it was obvious from our perspective, and this was also refreshing is that your self-preservation mindset, meaning promotion mindset, meaning get a good fit rep mindset, any of that make big gay look good, like happy horseshit, you cared nothing about. No. And the Marines, and I can't speak for all of them, but we, we knew that. It was like, man, this is cool. And the amount of BS that you deflected that we don't even know about, but Gay J had told us, you know, opso perspectives and things sure. like that. And he's like, oh, bro, Big Gay is like a shield, man. This dude is, you know, running resistance on a lot of stuff. And uh, for us, you know, the some of the other captains are like, Susan, is this, you know, is this normal? I was like, you, you want this to be the norm. I was like, you hope that, you know, for the first two or guys, I was like, if you can have a ready room like this and a culture like this, and get to go do tactical missions, you know, with the CEO and XO and Ops. So just a, just a rock star team. I'm like, dude, you guys have the best career, like in Marine Corps history. Um, so I was like, when you guys get a chance, I was like, take note of the good things that are happening on this cruise. Take note of the bad things. Cause fast forward 10 years, 15 years, when your department had slash skipper, eventually remember what we're doing. Remember how, the culture of this ready room. And if you can replicate that, you guys are going to kill it. Completely agree. And part of, so part of the, uh, I think what was enabling and empowering for me was, was I had a good boss. I had two good bosses, both Colonel Latt and Captain Ford were both uh, great bosses. But the thing is, I, I had the misfortune of rewriting of having, having to lead the rewrite on the Marine Corps TNR manual. So it's the training readiness manual. It is the Bible for when you're ready to do stuff. And if I follow the TNR and I train you to the TNR skill sets, I have every leg to stand on. I mean, you are ready for combat. That's, that's not up for interpretation. And so the other piece of it is like, what if, what if we got out there and had to go to war with China? You're going to fight China with four people in your squadron or six people. You don't have that luxury. Like everybody has to be in the fight. So that was, that was definitely my mindset going in was you guys paid the price of all the workups and all the training. And then you get to that point and we're going to say, leadership's going to say, you're not ready yet. Even though literally we've told you this is to get you ready for day one near peer fighting. And that's not even what we're doing in Syria. It's, it's I don't even know what you would call it. Low right. intensity conflict. Sure. If you're not going to let guys do that, come on, like, what are you going to let them do? It makes no sense. No other unit operates that way. If you're in an infantry unit, you get, you're on patrol and you get an ambush, 
they're not like, okay, you you stay here yeah. and you stay here. Yeah, new gonna... guys sit over there while the senior guys go and right. do the fighting. Yeah, well, only in aviation do you have that luxury of compartmentalizing people, and it makes no sense. So for the for the good of the individual and the good of the, you have to balance what's good for the organization and what's good for the individual. One or the other, one does not supersede the other. They have to be in balance with each other. And if you make the individual strong, that automatically makes the organization better and stronger. So it was, a, it was an awesome uh, checkerboard experience. I was blessed to be a part of it. It was awesome. And uh, uh, I know a lot of the guys uh, enjoyed it. So you had talked about kind of like your philosophy of command and how that experience connected you and, and what it did for you as a CEO. Uh, do you guys do anything now? Like the guys from that second cruise in 05? Sure. Yeah. We, uh, we try to get together. I know every year the guys that are in San Diego, they, they try to get together. We, we, as a, as a fra- fractured or I guess disparate group now all across the country, we try to do the five year thing. Uh, just go fly to San Diego if we can and go to Mount Soledad, which is, uh, there's a monument there with different plaques and whatnot. It really is just kind of, honestly, it's a good opportunity to just kind of meet up and catch up. We don't like sit around and tell stories or anything. It's really just kind of an opportunity to, to reconnect. And um, it's it's so great seeing those guys again because you really, when you step away into the rest of the real world and deal with everyday Americans, you you start to remember how privileged we were that time to know each other and to serve together and to get to know their families and their wives because they really are uh, a unique and special bunch beyond what we went through together. They're all, they're all uniquely uh, interesting people in their own right and accomplished. So it's awesome to get together. We try to celebrate uh, their lives. And uh, yeah, it's good, man. I think that's necessary. I think it's important to not forget. Yeah. Because it definitely shaped our li- it shaped all of our lives, and I think it, it brought us all back to earth. Some of us were pretty high on ourselves prior okay. to that point. So sobering. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Gotcha. So, what is something that you remember specifically about trash uh, and about Dukes that you can throw out there that doesn't you know yeah. incriminate them in any way? No, 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 not at all. Um, I remember. When I first joined the squadron, I didn't even know who Dukes was. I didn't know he was this, you know, super Marine fighter pilot, Top Gun instructor pilot, you know, dogfight master, yada, yada. Because he didn't present himself that that way at all. He was very, I'm sure you guys have heard me say uh, something that I was told years ago, which is to be humble, approachable, and credible. And he epitomized all of those things. Um, humility to a severe degree always owned up to his mistakes, but I remember, uh, we, we were doing a mission in Fallon and it was a, uh, notch to defend. So everybody's going on the merge and mixing it up with F-16 and so on. And I was just tumbleweed, which is clueless. No radar essay, no comm essay, just no essay. And he, he was notching and he was going to pitch back in and I was just unaware and I just drilled right into the, right into the merge with these F-16s. He pitches back in, and I'm sorry, there were hornets there too. So the bad guys were flying hornets as well. And I remember him saying, he's like, uh, gray hornet, 
rock your wings. And he was talking to me, but I didn't hear him. I was too busy just uh, looking at the one V seven, one V eight. I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> Fearless. He just kept saying, like, cause, cause he had me in his sights and he was getting ready to shoot me, but he was trying to figure out if it was a friendly or a foe. And I never did rock my wings cause I didn't even hear him. So he shoots me. And back then, and it should be the case now, but it's not because we've watered everything down in aviation. But if you have a blue on blue, even in training where you shoot a friendly, that's a keg at the O club. Sure. So, uh, because of my just buffoonery, he shot me in the ass and, uh, and then he had to buy, I mean, this is a, this is like literally like the top guy in everything, you know, everybody knows who he is in the air wing. And here he is having to just eat shit and buy a a keg at the Oak Club. Oh, humble pie. Love it. Because of me. Yeah. And no one even remembers that I was involved at all. All they know is that this humble warrior shot his wingman. Oh, my God. And how embarrassing is that? (laughs) Uh, So we joke all the time. that I joked with him then that uh, he was going to have to take care of my family. Because I was dead. I was my, dead. Sorry, my arms had been blown off. And, <laughs> all right, we joked that I survived, but I was a quadriplegic yeah, okay. and just all of it. So that's awesome. He took, you know, to his credit, as always, he took it in stride. He just had, yeah, just had this way about him. Bought the keg and owned it. Yeah, yeah, and, and he was just like, yeah, whatever. We'll move on into the next, the next uh, fight, and the next day he would absolutely whoop everyone's ass. So there was no. You couldn't talk smack anymore. Yeah. I was, yeah. I just, yeah. all these other blue on blue scenarios and memories are going through my head of <laughs> yeah. dudes shooting down. Oh yeah. Everything except the bad guys. Uh, well, how about, uh, trash? And he was a, he was a younger captain at he the was, time. Right? Yeah. So he was, he would have been junior to me or he would have been on his first cruise or he was on his first cruise rather. And, uh, his, he phenomenal guy, but aviation was in his family. His, uh, father, was an aviator. His, I'm sorry, his grandfather was an aviator. His father owned a P-51 Mustang and used to go to air shows and fly it. And unfortunately, his father actually uh, perished in a P-51 crash a couple months before we deployed. So he lost his dad pretty early on, uh, which was, I'm sure, very traumatic. Uh, and then his brother was a... Uh, pilot in VMFA 314, also boat squad, another phenomenal guy. But Trash was just a kind dude, just laid back and had a little girl at home, new wife, new kid, hardworking, uh, and just very patient. We would go to Squaw Valley in Tahoe, and he would teach the other captains how to ski. Nice. Because he had grown up skiing and everything. Just, just an all-around and a very talented aviator. Nice. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, just uh, good people. That's that's good stuff. So, well, sir, I think that wraps it up. We're at yeah TOT. So, first off, uh, thanks for taking the time again. Yeah, thanks and, for coming up. No, easy day. This is, again, like I had said, it's great to kick it with the guys and shoot the shit and be a part of the ready room and just kind of feel oh, that yeah. energy, yeah. you know. So, sure. um, I don't know, any final closing thoughts, takeaways? Lessons learned, uh, so leadership points, anything like that. Okay, no, that's good. Tidbits on how to not fly into Area Fifty One. You know, no, I, I actually stuff clearly like that. I have no idea of how not to do that. <laughs> um, what I would say is that uh, I think common uh, common hardship is what draws people together the most, 
and I would, and all the things that occurred that would be, that I would consider to be somewhat traumatic uh, were character building. And I think they made me who I, who I am today. So I, I don't regret any of it. I mean, it certainly loss of life is not something that I would choose, but if I'm going to have to endure a burden, I would say that I'm, my life is richer and fuller and I, I, I gain more out of the small, the simple things in life because of what I've endured. And I'm sure you would agree uh, with what you've dealt with as well. And I would say that the people that I got to fly and fight with in the snakes are exactly the same kind of people that I got to fly and fight with in the checkerboards. And we as a group in 312 would not have accomplished, I don't think any other group, and I've said this to myself many times, take me out of the picture regardless it had to be that group of people. It was like a motley crew of, it was almost like uh, the dirty dozen, Mm -hmm. the dirty 18. Sure. Plus all of our Marines. I don't think any other group could have done it. You know, they spent, I did the math, something like 270 days out of the preceding 430, they slept not in their bed and they were on ships or they were on Fallon. And there wasn't a lot of complaining, at least not to me, not that they would, but um, so I'm grateful and humbled to have had the experience to lead such a fine group of Americans. Oh, sir, it was great to be, uh, I could not have asked for a better squadron to be in and to have the honor to be the senior captain and just play a tiny little role in that ready room, you know, with, with the guys was awesome. And, uh, and to still be close with the majority of the ready room today and just take that stuff that you've taught us and that humble, I would call it humble leadership style because it's definitely it's something I try to use in kind of the world I live in now so I think it does I think uh our our task is to be humble before God if that's something that you subscribe to that's one of the things that is required so okay cool man save rounds nope okay this is a big game Susan we're out of here folks see ya